Okay, we continue our studies today in Isaiah. We are right smack dab in the middle of Isaiah 55, which is one of the better known chapters of the Old Testament. And there is a lot in there. And uh, we may finish that up today, and we may not. We started last week, and uh, we covered the first five verses of Isaiah 55 last week. I want to make a couple of comments just to get our context, because it can get kind of confusing going through Isaiah. Because he's actually speaking to two two different groups of people. I remember he prophesied in the time of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And their reigns went all the way from 792 B.C. to 586, excuse me, 686 B.C. And remember, Judah went into exile in 587, I think. Anybody, if I'm wrong on that, uh, I think it was 586. Okay, so he, he prophesied before the exile. Now, during his prophecy, uh, at least some of his prophecy, the northern kingdom was already in exile. They weren't yet. So um, God was in the process of bringing judgment against his people. They they were already having problems with the Assyrians who had taken the northern kingdom into captivity. So he is prophesying now a lot of these prophecies are about the Babylonian judgment, which was to come later. And actually, he's, he has two purposes here in his ministry. One is to encourage the people of God to be faithful to the Lord at the present time. And then he was also exhorting future readers in exile to repent and turn back to the Lord where they would be blessed again. So we've got to remember that there's two audiences, the pre-exilic Judeans and then also in the future, the ones that would be in exile. They could read these prophecies and be encouraged by them. So that's why I sometimes say he's speaking to the people in exile even though there's nobody in exile yet from the southern kingdom. But Isaiah was very valuable for the people in exile to try to encourage them. Okay. We're in Isaiah 55, and we have just got to the point uh, in Isaiah 55. We're nearing the end of a section, and um, the first five verses was where the gospel, the command of the people to come, the uh, call, the universal call of the gospel. God was calling them. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, etc. He was issuing the gospel call to come to Christ in the future, the Christ of the future, but to come to the Savior. And uh, they would have all kinds of blessings. They would have the blessings of David. Uh, so he, we talked about the universal call and the effectual call. Remember, the universal call goes out to men indiscriminately. The effectual call comes about through the Holy Spirit to the elect. 
and the elect and the elect only receive the effectual call. So to set the context of just this little part here, we have Isaiah 53 is the crucifixion of Christ. Isaiah 54 is the worldwide expansion of the church. And Isaiah 55 is the gospel call going out. The call. So we're in the call now. Not the invitation. You're not invited to believe in Christ. You are commanded to believe in Christ. So Isaiah 55, 6 through 10. Uh, Michelle, I will have you read that for us today. 6 through, excuse me, 6 through 9. 6 through 9. Okay. Yes. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. <clears throat> there was a man named Frank Wiedekind. Wiedekind. He was a German playwright lived from 1864 to 1918. He makes this following statement, and I'm sure others have made this statement too, but this was the only one I could find. Uh, he said, God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. And Jethro Tull, for you rock fans out there, <laughs> I believe this was on his uh, Aqualung um, album. I have that. You have that? Yeah. I don't have it now. <laughs> Same here. I used to listen to that all the time. But anyway, he makes this following statement. I don't know which song it was in Aqualung, but I can still kind of hear it in the background. He says, In the beginning, man created God, and in the image of man created he him. So he had the idea here of man making God in his own image. That's the sum of these two statements. And there may be a whole lot more truth in this than we are willing to admit. Let's uh, have Psalm 50, 21 read, Laura. Psalm 50, 21. Yep. While you all did this, I remained silent, and you thought I didn't care. But now I will rebuke you, listing all my charges against you. Okay, um, that's kind of a paraphrase, and I don't, I don't think they hit it right on the button. Turn to Psalm 50, verse 21. Or maybe I've got the wrong verse myself. Yeah. All right, in the English Standard, it says, These things... You have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. Did I just miss that? Did you say something like that? No. Okay. Yeah, or the I think the New King James says, you thought I was altogether like you. So sinful man seems to have a problem of thinking that God is like him. He limits God to being like him. In other words, he 
creates God in its own image. He doesn't let God be God and man be man. He tries to bring God down to something that he can understand, something on his level. Now we're going to see that that's what these people have done and God rebukes them for it. Verses 6 and 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Here's another call going out to the children of Israel, the Judeans. And the people are told at least five things here. Seek the Lord. Call upon him. Forsake their ways. Forsake their thoughts. And return to the Lord. Those are the things that they are told to do in these verses. And they are listed there for you in your notes. Alright, <clears throat> it's worthy noting that in this in the Hebrew, these are all commands, they're not suggestions. God is not saying, please come to me. I invite you to call upon me. No. These are commands. Every one of them is in the imperative mood. Okay, in verse 6, the people are told to seek the Lord and call upon Him. This indicates that they probably were not doing this. If they were already doing this, God would not tell them the things He tells them. They could care less. They weren't listening to His prophets, and they were not even considering following His command. This command. Now you remember probably 10, 15, maybe 20 chapters ago that the people would wake up in the morning just to start drinking. Um, and they didn't care about anything else, just their own pleasure, their own luxury. And they lived to drink. Basically is what it was. And so they obviously did not care anything about listening to God's prophets and following His commands. All right, now notice that this time, God is still near and he can be found. He says, call upon me while I'm near. One of the first sermons that we heard of Joey Piper here in Greenville, we went to his church some when we were in Houston, was on that passage. Yeah. He drove home while he may be found because at some point God's going to call him. Holy Spirit back. You aren't going to feel any friction in your heart. You're through. Mm-hmm. He gave you your chance. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is one of the scariest verses in Scripture. Absolutely. Yeah. About reprobation. Huh. Reprobation is yeah. as well. Yeah, you remember we read Proverbs 1 last week. You better, you better return. You better turn at his reproof. Well, when you finally decide you want to, uh, he's going to laugh at you. There is a time coming where he will, uh, it'll be too late to repent. Esau found that out. We'll read that in Hebrews 12, I think it is. He sought repentance, but he couldn't, it wasn't there. Your heart can get so hard. So yes, that is a very scary verse if you are outside of Christ. Seek the Lord while he is may be found and while he's near which implies there is a time coming where he 
will not be near and he will not be found. <clears throat> so there are the notes. Notice that at this time, God is still near and can be found. It also implies that a time is coming when he will, when this will not be the case. And people that will not turn to Christ, it's not going to hurt at all to tell them, so that, you know, turn now while you can. When you die, it's too late, obviously. But uh, even while you're alive, Scripture teaches your hard heart can become so hard that you're not, God's just not going to be there. He's just not going to be there. general call to the Jews and then the worldwide call to Jews and Gentiles but when God calls it is the only wise thing to do is to come every time a person hears the gospel and he rejects it his heart gets a little bit harder All right, in verse 7, the people are told to forsake their wicked ways. They were paying no attention to God's law. They probably didn't even know his law. If you read the prophets, the pre-exilic prophets, they didn't even know his law, much less follow it. Alright, so they're to forsake their wicked ways and they were paying no attention to God's law. They are told to forsake their unrighteous thoughts. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And then he says, let him return to the Lord. And... Um, <clears throat> Their thinking was like the world. In this case, it was like uh, the Babylonians, most likely those that he was uh, talking to when they were in captivity. They had taken up the ways of the Babylonians, and uh, they were learning their ways, and they weren't learning God's ways. They had been instructed out of the law from God's prophet Isaiah, but it was not affecting their thinking. One affecting their thinking and one affecting their ways so they are told to forsake those things and what God is telling them is to what 
That's in your blank there. What's God telling them to do? What will we call that when you forsake your wicked ways and your wicked thoughts? Repent. Repent, yes. What they need to do is repent. All right, let's talk a minute about repentance. And I want to read from Ortland here something very practical, something that makes you think. He says, Seeking the Lord is a whole life realignment with Christ. We stop treating Him as a religious garnish on the side. He becomes our continual feast, our defining center. And the time to move in His direction is now. He is near to us, not far off, not aloof and unavailable. He invites us to call upon Him to still come nearer. Our part is to reject ourselves. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. How could it be otherwise? Our ways and thoughts trivialize God and exalt ourselves. Our status quo, our adequacy, our okayness. But the truth is we're wrong. And what's wrong with us is everything we are right down to our thoughts. We are so tolerant of our sins, especially if we maintain a superficial, technical righteousness. But we've lost the radical edge of real Christianity in our generation. I hope we're not beyond recovery. And this is a fairly recent book. We may be. We've forgotten that Christianity is so contrary to our ingrained likes and dislikes. It requires nothing less than a transformation of the magnitude of a religious conversion. We Americans can't just tweak our American ways and our American thoughts. We can't just, quote-unquote, make a decision for Christ and leave it at that. We can't join a certain church because it won't challenge our selfish lifestyle and think that's Christianity. Being nice, harmless, church-going people with no repentance, no submission, no forsaking of self, no pursuit of Christ, but all that covered with a glaze of sentimental religion on Sunday mornings. This is not at all what God has in mind for us. Could the average church today fit into the book of Acts? The psychology of too many churches, both liberal and conservative, is so filled with certainty about ourselves that there's no room for the openness of God. We have drifted from the gospel and don't, and we don't have forever to go back. So these words are very applicable to us, the church nowadays. We need to listen. Okay, now in our standards in chapter 15 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, just a sentence or two about what repentance is. It says, Repentance unto life is an... It, and this is interesting how, the, how they frame this. It's an evangelical grace. The doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel. Every minister of the gospel. According to the, to the um, standards is to preach repentance. And that's 
found in Acts 11, 18, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and other places. They have about five or six proof texts from the Bible that, in their opinion, if you're not teaching repentance, you're not worthy of being a preacher. Repentance is to be preached by every member of the gospel. Now we have today what is called a carnal Christian theory, which is really a carnal Christian heresy. Um, look at, uh, I, want to, I want you to look at something in <clears throat> Romans 10. That carnal Christian theory or heresy says that you can accept Jesus as your Savior. And later on, if you want to, you know, if the Spirit really leads you to do it, you can accept Jesus as your Lord of your life also. Now, in, in, um, <clears throat> in Romans 10, in verse um, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your personal Savior and believe in your heart, no. That's what is preached so many times now, and that's what the carnal Christian heretics will tell you. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is your personal Savior, you're saved. <clears throat> Somebody read what that really says. Mike, will you do that? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe in your heart, that, uh, if you confess with your mouth, rather, that Jesus is Lord. To be saved, you have to confess Jesus is your Lord. Personal Savior is not going to cut the mustard. If Jesus isn't Lord, you have no part of him. <clears throat> Who has Mark chapter 1? Let's all turn there. What does verse 4 say? Mark 1, 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of amendment of life the up-to-date translation will say a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word is metanoia, which is normally translated as repentance. And then in verse um, 14 and 15. Kim, again. Now after that, John was committed to prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying... The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Okay, here we have the word in Greek, metanoia again. Repent and believe the gospel. Some of the first recorded words of John, the forerunner, is repent. Some of the first words of Jesus, when he begins his ministry, according to Mark, is repent and believe in the gospel. So, the forerunner and the Savior 
some of their first words, public words, was repent. And Luke 24, 47, of course, tells us that the church is to teach repentance for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. Not teach that Jesus is your personal Savior to all the nations. But repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Who has second Christ? All right. Now, we need to know, did the people repent? Here we had Isaiah issuing the command for these people to repent. Did they repent? Who has Second Chronicles 36, 15, and 16? That's me. Okay. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by messenger because he had compassion on his people and upon his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at the prophets within until the wrath of God of the Lord rose against the people until there was no remedy. Does it sound like they repented? All right, read the next verse too. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on their young men or virgin, um, old men or aged. Okay, and he goes on there to tell all the awful things that happened to Jerusalem. No, they did not repent. They, um, they kept mocking the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at the prophets. And finally, the wrath of God rose up against them until there was no remedy. That's the time where God was no longer near. That's the time... But it was too late for them to repent. There was no remedy. Okay, so the people of Israel did not repent. Did they repent after their restoration? They went into exile for, what, 70 years? And then they were led back? Let's see if they repented even then. Malachi 4. Four and five. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, a statute and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you a prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. All right. Very last words of the old. Okay, one more verse. Six. Yeah. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with awe, with a curse. All right, that's a good place there to quit reading. Last few verses of the Old Covenant. All right, so no, it doesn't look like they repented even after they were brought back to the land. Um, God is threatening to strike the, the uh, land with a curse. Evidently, the hearts of the fathers needed to be turned to the children and vice versa. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses. They had rejected all these things. They still had not repented. Okay, did the people of the new covenant, when Jesus came, had they repented? Well, we've already read that when Jesus and John the forerunner came to the 
came to the front, they had to command them to repent. You don't command people to repent if they don't need to repent. So they still hadn't repented. And even during Jesus' days, they did not repent. And eventually, Jesus had to make this statement. Matthew 21, 43. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is going to be taken away from you. They failed to repent at the time of Isaiah. They failed to repent back when they were in the land, according to Malachi. They still hadn't repented when Jesus came. He had to command them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he still hadn't, they still hadn't repented after Jesus' ministry. So Jesus tells them, because you have not repented, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to the Gentiles. So we see they never did listen to the prophets or the apostles. hadn't come on the scene yet, but they mocked the prophets. They ridiculed them, and they were driven out of the land. They came back. They still didn't repent, and... um, they didn't repent at the, at the command of Jesus. And uh, so Jesus finally said, enough. All right, also in verse 7, God states that if they return, he will have compassion on them and abundantly pardon them. He says, let them return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon Okay, Elaine, will you look up for us Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Okay. This is a promise that comes from God. God promises he will abundantly pardon them. And God is a promise keeper. He is the promise keeper. There's only one. All men are liars. So God is the promise keeper. This is in accord with his character as he has previously revealed in the scriptures. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God had already told them that he was that kind of God. So let's have that read. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inquiry or iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. All right, he abundantly pardons. He has already shown them that before. And he reiterates that here. And if you return to me, I will abundantly pardon you. And remember, he's not like us. All right, in verses 8 and 9, God informs them on the difference between them and himself. The difference between them and himself. His thoughts are different from their thoughts. His ways are different from their ways. His thoughts are higher than their thoughts. His ways are higher than their ways. 
But so what God is saying here is that he is different from them. Men normally do not like to forgive and are not nearly as compassionate as they should be. So if God were like that, there, if God was like them, there would be no need for them to repent. If a guy wasn't going to pardon, why do it? And that would make him like them. And as we read in Psalm 50, verse 21, he, God says, you thought I was altogether like you. So we must not let this escape our notice that God is not like us. He abundantly pardons. No matter how bad you are, if you repent, the Apostle Paul is proof of that. If you repent, he and return to him, then he will pardon your sins. But that doesn't mean to put off repentance because there will be a time where it will be too late. So, yes, we are guilty at times of making God in our image because so many times we don't think that he'll forgive like he does. We bring him back down to our level. I want to read out of an old devotion here what John Calvin has to say about this. And then we will be finished for today. John Calvin says that there is nothing that troubles our consciences more than when we think God is like ourselves. For the consequence is that we do not venture to approach Him and we flee from Him as an enemy and are never at rest. Those who measure God by themselves as a standard from a false idea and altogether contrary to his nature. Indeed, they cannot do him a, great, a greater injury than this. So he says that you're taking God's name in vain when you try to make God like us. That's what Calvin is saying. And this devotion goes on to say we should not be ashamed. We should be ashamed that we who are corrupt and debased by sinful desires compare God's lofty and uncorrupted nature with our own. We too often attempt to confine what is infinite within the narrow limits by which we feel ourselves to be wretched and restrained. To escape this prison of unbelief, we must heed the word of God. When he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, and things of that nature. So it is a terrible thing for us to try to limit God to being like us. It causes all kinds of problems for us. All right, I'm going to stop here today. We'll begin with verse 10 next week. Anybody have anything to add? Yes. Would you I believe that says in verse 7, God states that there that if they return, is that where it is? Yes. Yeah, he will have compassion on them and abundantly pardon them. This is a promise that comes from God and God's promise keeper. This is in accord with his character as revealed in the scriptures. And then in verses 8 and 9, God informs them of the differences between 
him and them. And if he was like them, there would be no need for them to repent. If he wasn't going to forgive them, pardon them, it wouldn't do any good to repent. Okay, anything else? Well, this kind of reminds me of this, um, I don't know if anyone else has seen it. There's a big multi-million dollar ad campaign about Jesus, he gets us. Jesus what? He gets us. He gets us. That's yeah. that's the theme. Jesus gets us. He gets because, us. You know, um, they're spending a lot of money on the Super Bowl to promote this, trying to help us to understand that Jesus, his life is kind of something that we can he can relate to us because he's kind of on our level. Um, you hear it on the Super Bowl. It's got to be right, right? It's, <laughs> That it's interesting. There's no. It's like okay, he's on the same level as us, you know, but there's no call to like repentance or things that we were talking about. Another blasphemous movie or whatever. Yeah. So would you say that carnal Christianity is a is a religion that says that you can be saved without repenting? Yeah. They don't talk about repentance at all. No. Just accept Jesus as your personal savior and. Right. You're okay. Yeah. And so once saved, really, once saved, always saved too. They're the liberals of, you know, Machen's Christianity and liberalism. It's a different yeah. religion. Yeah. It is. You can't just say the prayer, go forward, be baptized, and that's it. Yeah. Remember when we were back in Hebrews when we were talking about perseverance? I made the analogy that the uh, Christian life is like a marathon, it's not like a sprint. You can't get on the finish line of a, a starting line of a marathon and run that first mile as fast as you can and have a fantastic first mile and then sit down in the grass and say, whew, that was tough, and open up a beer. And the papers next day talk about you, what a fantastic mile you ran. No. By your name is going to be a big DNF. Did not finish. Yeah, you've got to finish the race. You can't just start out like heeding an altar call and then saying, okay, I'm saved. That's like dropping out of a marathon at the one-mile mark. Um, we spent a lot of time on perseverance and endurance in Hebrews. And the carnal Christian theory ignores all of that. Okay, anything else? Okay. Kim, close us in prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, 